should probably bring the sermon with me, right? <laughs> I think I forgot it because I was uh, wanting to uh, thank Micah for uh, banging on the drums. Isn't it great to have him back? And it's not only good to have you, Micah, but all the, all the rest of the Corbin students as well. We, uh, we miss you all. I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me just say that we are getting close to the finish line in our study on discipleship that we have called Follow Me, the Adventure of Discipleship. And several areas of study have marked uh, uh, our discussion over the last several weeks and this journey that we've been on. We began by looking at the essence of discipleship. We learned that the essence of discipleship is one of being a person who is engaged in self-denial. The process of cross-bearing and actually following the Lord Jesus Christ. We have learned, as we learned in the call to worship this morning, that disciples are called to be salt of the earth. We are called to be light in this world. Disciples are called to, to serve one another, not only to serve one another in the local church family, but to also serve one another in our community. Disciples are called to distribute the love of God. The disciples are called to a life of holiness, to a life of purity. They are called to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we learned that disciples, moreover, are called to pass the torch of truth to the next generation. We have three more weeks in this study, and then we will launch back into the Gospel of John as we celebrate Easter together. But for the last three weeks, I want you want to, to focus really on what it means to build a culture of discipleship. What it means to, to, to develop this environment where discipleship can grow and flourish. And the three crucial activities that we will uh, discuss over the next three weeks involve three words, the first of which we will discover today. The three words are the pulpit, the table, and the square. I want to show a a chart on the PowerPoint screen. We can look at, at what these different areas involve. First of all, the pulpit, and of course we'll look at that today. The pulpit describes where the church gathers for public worship, to hear the Word of God, to receive the ordinances, and to worship our Lord. The focus here, as you see, is upward. As we come together, our focus is upward. Next week, we will look at the table. The table is where relationships are cultivated. And there's many places where those relationships are cultivated. But since we're referring to the table, I want to suggest that discipleship takes place in the local church when we gather in homes, when we come together, when we eat meals together, uh, more important than meals, when we drink coffee together. Good things happen when we drink coffee together, do they not? Amen from anyone? Oh, lots of you. Okay. That's where cultivating relationships take place. And the focus here, you see, is inward. When we talk about the pulpit, our focus is upward. When we talk about uh, developing relationships, the focus is inward. And then finally, we will look at the word, the square. The square. And the square represents the church's presence and influence in the community our presence and influence in the community, and obviously our focus there is outward. The title of the message today, as we begin with this first component, is The Pulpit, Disciples Moving 
upward. Disciples moving upward. And I want to focus our attention here on the pulpit where people, as I've already said, gather together for public worship. They come to hear. I trust that you have come to hear the word of God where you have come to receive the ordinances and to worship the living God. But I want to focus your specific attention this morning on the pulpit and the importance of hearing the Word of God. That is, I want to take our time together this morning to discuss the all-important role of biblical preaching. Look with me, Will, and if you would stand, stand with me as we read the Word of God this morning. Second Timothy Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul the Apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to the young pastor Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, what a privilege it is to come together as the body of Christ. What a privilege it is to stand together out of uh, respect for the authority of your word. The word that we hold is sufficient. The word that we believe is infallible. The word that, that we know is, is inerrant. The word that binds our conscience. The word that, that helps us to understand who you are and the Lord Jesus Christ whom you sent to be our final, the final payment for sin. To be our substitute to stand in our place, to reconcile us to a holy God, to redeem us from the slave market of sin. And now we come to this passage, God, and ask that you would help us as we spend the last three weeks of our study on discipleship, that you would help us to see the importance today of the role of the pulpit. May you open our eyes. May you soften our hearts. May you help our minds be receptive to the truth of the word of God so that the Lord Jesus would be honored and glorified in this place. It's in his worthy name we pray. Amen. As we were worshiping this morning, uh, one of the well-known Puritans came into my mind. His name is Richard Baxter. And Richard Baxter said at one point during his ministry the following words. He said, As a dying man to dying men... I preach as if to never preach again. Well, this morning I'm a dying man. And you are dying men and women and boys and girls. We are on a a particular path together. If you are in Christ, your path is the celestial city. And my task each week is to, to preach a message as if it will be my last. And I trust that that will come to pass on this day. And my hope is that it will not be my last. But as we consider biblical preaching, I want to zero in on three primary concerns and give you a a bit of a map before we begin. First, I want to draw your attention to the directive for biblical preaching. 
We will look very closely at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and see what the directive is and pay close attention to it. Second, I want to draw your attention to the distinctives of biblical preaching. What is it that defines biblical preaching? What must it entail for it to be considered biblical preaching? And then finally... I want you to see the demand for biblical preaching in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. But first, look with me at the directive for biblical preaching and look once again to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Here he is, Paul is is very careful to set up the context for the directive that Timothy will see. And it is a directive that we will see as well. And here he says, I charge you. Look at that word charge. I would mark it in your Bible. It has the flavor of a warning. When Paul charges Timothy, he says, this is something I insist on. The very idea of Paul the Apostle insisting on anything should cause the young pastor, namely Timothy, to stand and pay attention. When we read in the Word of God that we are called to do something, in this case, there is a charge to preach the Word. We ought to, with Timothy, rise to our feet and be ready and willing to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul adds a weightiness here in this verse that is absolutely undeniable. He says once again, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. And I hope you see the, the, the weightiness of this charge. He says the Lord Jesus Christ one day will come to judge in light of his sovereign rule. This is my charge to you. I insist on it. Preach the word. Look at verse 2. He utters forth this imperative. This is a command. Preach the word. Keruzo ton lagon. This is what seminarians say to one another as they pass in the hall. Hey, brother, how's it going? Keruzon ton lagon. Preach the word. This Greek phrase means this. It means to herald the truth of the word of God with passion, with power, with precision, and with biblical conviction. It simply means to announce. It means to herald. It means to set forth the truth of God's word. Preaching, writes John Stott, is indispensable to Christianity. The most important need in the Christian church today is true preaching, said Martin Lloyd-Jones. He went on to say that at its greatest and most urgent need is in the church. It is obviously the greatest need of the world also. We will see as we move into verses 3 and 4 that the world wants nothing to do with biblical preaching. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this of preaching. When the pulpit ministry lacks substance, the church is severed from the word of God and its health and faithfulness are immediately diminished. Moeller goes on to say, I want to argue that preaching that is central to Christian worship is expository preaching. In fact, I believe, Moeller says, that the only form of authentic Christian preaching is expository preaching. 
expository preaching. Mark Dever, the pastor of Capital City Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., just in the shadow of uh, the the White House and the, the Capitol, says this, The nature of preaching as the heralding of God's word means that any and all Christian preaching necessarily derives its authority from being rooted in and tethered tightly to God's word, the scriptures. Put more sharply, Dever says, anything that is not rooted in and tethered tightly to God's word is not preaching at all. Have you ever heard that kind of preaching? The preaching that is not tethered to the word of God. The preaching that is filled with the preacher's opinion. Preaching that is is drawing more from philosophy than the word of God. Mark Dever says that is not preaching at all. I need to say this morning as we look at this imperative to preach the word that the ministry of proclamation, both for the preacher and for the hearer, is not for the faint at heart. It's not for the faint at heart. It is not for the timid. And I might add that the compromisers need not apply. Why? God is looking for preachers all around the world who herald the truth with passion, power, precision, and conviction. He is looking for men of God, men of God who will wield the mighty sword so that the nations, as we sung about earlier, would find their joy In the Lord Jesus Christ. God calls men of the book to boldly announce the saving benefits of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the power of the spirit for the great benefit of all people. For the great benefit of sinners like you and like me. Look once again at 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2. We see the imperative. He sets it up for the young pastor Timothy. Preach the word. And then he clarifies, he says that biblical preachers who preach the word need to be ready. They need to be ready in season and out of season. That is to say, these preachers preach Christ with bold resolve, both in times of fruitfulness and times of famine. Nothing deters the faithful preacher of God's word. The faithful preacher of God's word is unmoved by criticism. He is unhindered by persecution. And when people tell him to lighten up, he tightens up. When people tell him stop preaching boldly, the faithful preacher wants to preach with all the more boldness. When people tell him that they're not interested in biblical preaching, he continues on. When people resist biblical preaching... The man of God is motivated to preach stronger and relies with greater intensity on his God who promises to enable him by his grace. This is the man that Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 who is transfixed on the word of God, compelled by God's spirit to faithfully deliver the unadulterated message of the gospel to the people. This is the man who is riveted by the reality of the gospel. This is a man who is untouched by the the stain and the pollution of the world, the lure of pragmatism, and the sinful opinions of men. This is a man that Paul describes is ready in season and out of season. He's ready to go. He's excited. He's courageous. He's bold. And he is excited about preaching the word of God. And it is this commitment... 
It is this commitment to preach the word of God that will help to set the stage, if you will, to enable our church family to build a healthy culture of discipleship. Imagine this with me. No more preaching. No more preaching. I I am no good at math, but I can tell you this. No preaching equals no discipleship. No preaching equals no discipleship. And so this is the kind of culture we seek to build at Christ Fellowship. It is a culture of preaching. It is a culture where, where the word of God is above the people. And you know in the, the 16th century, the reformers and the, the Puritans who would follow is their pulpits were much higher than our pulpit. In fact, Dreen and I, when we were at St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, Scotland, we had a chance to see one of these pulpits. This is the pulpit of John Knox, and it is a pulpit that you actually have to climb up the stairs to get in. It's how Charles Haddon Spurgeon's pulpit was as well, and many of the other great men of God, the Puritans and the Reformers and whatnot. And the reason that they would climb these steps into the pulpit is because they believed that the Word of God stood in authority over the people of God. It was not so the people of God could see the preacher better. It was not a pragmatic reason. Rather, the Word of God is authoritative over the people of God. We seek to be a culture where the Word of God does just that, where it is authoritative over us, a culture where the sword of the Spirit does its saving work and its sanctifying work, a a culture where the Word of God is treasured above all and where the people of God surrender to its authority. My question by way of practical application is, are you learning to... To surrender to the authority of God's word. Are you learning to trust in the sufficiency of God's word? Does it stand in authority over you this morning? Well, this is the directive. The directive is to preach the word. But I want to move on and look look together at the distinctives now. The distinctives of biblical preaching. And it emerges in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2. We've seen the imperative in verse 2 to preach the word. And then Paul adds this. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Here we find three distinctives that serve as unshakable anchors that help to guide the tone, the strategy, and the message of the preacher. Look at the three anchors with me. The first unshakable, unshakable anchor is that biblical preaching challenges people. How many of you like to be challenged? You, you, you like the challenge from the Word of God. If a person's not interested in being challenged, biblical preaching is not for him or her. Because biblical preaching challenges the people. Look at that first word in verse 2. It's the word that is translated in English, as reprove. Reprove. Here's what the word means. It means to expose or convict. I can't tell you how many times I've had people call me or come talk to me or send me an email, and it's not always positive. It usually is. Sometimes it's negative. But it goes something like this. Have you been reading my mail? Did my husband come talk to you? No, ma'am. I can assure you he didn't. What's happening is the word of God, when it is preached with biblical authority, when it is preached faithfully, it does exactly what Paul tells Timothy to do. 
It reproves, it exposes, it convicts. And this is the kind of preaching that helps to uncover sin in the heart of the listener. Listen, when the Word of God reveals a sin to you, when it exposes your pride, when it exposes your selfishness, when it exposes your fear, when it exposes your laziness, when it exposes whatever sin it is in your life, remember this, that is an act of mercy. It is an act of mercy when the word of God says, hey, buddy, that's you. You're the man. You remember when David was caught, when he was when he was really set up by Nathan. And he ended up telling King David, you are the man. This is a preaching that challenges worldly presuppositions. It's preaching that helps to expose an evil heart of unbelief. And I might humbly add, in our day, it is getting more and more difficult to find preaching that challenges people, that reproves, that exposes, that convicts. Why? The church is awash in preaching. I put that word in quotes. Preaching that follows a a therapeutic model that coddles people and wants people to feel better about themselves, even better about their sin in some cases. Much of what passes for preaching in our generation, especially in America, is man-centered. And any preaching that is man-centered, I might add, is sub-gospel. That is, it fails to, to match the biblical inter- imperative to preach the word. Look at the second anchor. The second anchor in verse 2 as well. Paul says to rebuke. That is, biblical preaching warns people. Biblical preaching warns people. It was July the 8th, uh, 1741, when a lanky preacher, tall and skinny, made his way into the pulpit in Enfield, Connecticut. His practice was to begin his sermon... By reading his text, and in this case, the preacher quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, and he said, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. You might say this was not a seeker-sensitive sermon. Deuteronomy 32:35 threatened the judgment of a sovereign God on the unbelieving Israelites who were God's visible people yet remained obstinate and stiff-necked and had hard hearts despite the many gifts that God had bestowed upon them. The central thought that Jonathan Edwards, the preacher in this case, developed is far removed in our day for what usually passes for preaching in the American church. Listen to what Edwards said in this sermon. He said, there is nothing that keeps wicked man at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. He goes on to say that there are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. It's an unbelievable thing because some of you have read the sermon in college classes, in a literature class or a history class. And if if you know some of the professors I've been affiliated with, the... 
the sermon that is probably the most famous sermon in American history is read in many of these classes to mock Jonathan Edwards and to show uh, what a mean-spirited person he was. And nothing could be further from the truth because the sermon in 1741 had a, a powerful effect on the hearts and the minds of the Enfield congregation. His biography, biographer, rather, Ian Murray, observes that men suddenly in large numbers made to feel the real nature and the danger of sin. What happened while Edwards was preaching this sermon is men and women and boys and girls would cry out, Save me from hell! What do, I need, what do I need to do to be saved? Where in our culture, if this sermon were preached in many churches... What would ensue would be angry emails or letters or criticism of one who would preach a message on the eternal wrath of Almighty God. Well, preaching that rebukes offers stern warnings to sinners. This is kind of preaching that reminds people that, that sin is serious, that sin has a price tag. We know the verse very well. The wages of sin is what? It's death. And that's what we need to hear. Even believers, we need to hear the wages of sin is death. Why? So we can remember the great height that we have been delivered from. The great depth that we have been delivered from when Jesus saved us from our sin. Preaching that rebukes sinners reminds them that there is a way that seems right to men, but in the final analysis, it leads to death. Preaching that rebukes reminds sinners that sin must be accounted for. That is to say, people must either bear the weight of their own sin, all on their own, or they must cast their sin on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He bears the weightiness of their sin for them on the cross. But once again, the kind of preaching that warns, I believe, for the most part, is rare in the contemporary pulpit, especially in America. Much of the current preaching is filled with, and you've heard it, anecdotes and warm stories and poems and, and platitudes. Much of today's preaching is simply designed to, to tickle ears and to fill pews. And the end result, as we learned from Dr. Moeller, is a spiritually hungry congregation, an impoverished congregation. I've talked to people in churches where the word of God is not proclaimed faithfully, and it's, it's so sad because you, you, can, you can hear it in their voice. They're hungry for scripture. They're hungry for the truth from God's word. Such a congregation will, in the final analysis, feel much delight, but at the end of the day, will be deceived. Finally, we see the third unshakable anchor, and that is that biblical preaching exhorts people. Look again at verse 2. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The word exhort is an interesting word that comes from a Greek word that means to earnestly urge. I like that. To earnestly urge. It means to implore it means to invite. This is the kind of preaching that sometimes feels pushy. This is the kind of preaching that sometimes feels like, like the Holy Spirit is, is tapping you on the chest. Do you ever feel like the pastor, whoever the preacher might be, is once again involved in your personal business? It's getting too close for comfort. This is the kind of preaching that exhorts. This is the kind of preaching that we need 
John Piper refers to this kind of preaching, and I like this a lot, as expository exaltation. Expository exaltation. This is preaching that involves a kind of holy gravitas and pleads with people. It yearns with people. It begs people to earnestly follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. This is kind of a preaching that, that exhorts people or urges people to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus. It invites them to believe in Jesus, to find their satisfaction in him. Preaching that exhorts, moreover, exhorts or summons people to, to live to the glory of God. Remember Paul's uh, words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Of God, this kind of preaching exhorts people to a it's a it's a sort of divine initiative. The plea to walk according to the Spirit, to be people of the book, to place Jesus Christ above all. Finally, I want you to see with me quickly the demand the demand for biblical preaching. Would you look with me at verses three and four? And this is where things get very challenging. Paul says, "For the time is coming." When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I think you would agree with me that in our culture, preaching has fallen on hard times. In fact, it's interesting. The Bible calls it the foolishness of preaching. Does preaching ever perplex you? Sometimes I wake up in the morning. I was up this morning at, at 4.30 and praying and, and reviewing my sermon notes and the thought struck me and it's not the first time it struck me. I, I'm going to stand in front of a bunch of people and say words. And some of these words will encourage people and other words will not encourage people. It will stir them up. I kind of thought to myself, this is weird. Preaching is weird, but it's called the foolishness of preaching, and it's God's appointed means of drawing sinners to himself, and it's God's appointed means of enabling people to walk on the sanctification path for the glory of God. But here we see in the demand for biblical preaching, it's very clear. Paul warns Timothy that the day is coming, and I think we can say the day has come. <laughs> he says the day is coming when people will grow impatient with preaching. So can we just say the time has come. People are growing in large measure impatient with biblical preaching. And these people will resist the faithful ministry that pastors are called to. Three things surface in these verses. First, people will recoil at the notion of doctrine. They will recoil at the notion of doctrine. Ask yourself, have I ever recoiled at theology or doctrine? The phrase that Paul uses is sound teaching, which in the Greek means healthy teaching or accurate teaching. Additionally, people will not only recoil at sound doctrine, they will, and this is amazing to me, they will rally around false teachers. The word is accumulate, which means to heap up. That is, people in, in our day will heap up false teachers. They will rally around false teachers who will advance 
erroneous views like universalism or a denouncement of penal substitutionary atonement. It is hard for me to fathom when someone who professes to be a Christian who teaches universalism. It is, I cannot get it through my mind, a, a professing Christian who repudiates the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. But these heresies are growing by the day. And it's not just authors you read about in the bookstore. These are pastors and authors who are teaching these erroneous doctrines. Why do they do it? Paul tells us very clearly. They do it to suit their own passions, literally to suit their own evil cravings. And so people will recoil at doctrine. They will rally around false teachers. Finally, we'll see this, and this is where it gets very sad, is people will repudiate the truth. Look at verse 4. We see this repudiation where Paul uses the word, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That phrase, turn away, means to reject something in its simplest form. In this case, it means to reject the truth. In our case, it means to wander off into myths, like telling people to walk into the shack. That's exactly what this is telling us. When people repudiate the truth, they exchange the truth of God for a substitute. And in this case, they turn to teachers and preachers who tell them exactly what they want to hear. False gospels such as prosperity theology, the prosperity doctrine, the prosperity gospel thrives in what I like to call this putrid soil. As people flock to hear about health and wealth and man-centered ideology and philosophy. We've seen the directive for biblical preaching. We've seen the distinctives of biblical preaching. And finally, we've seen the demand for biblical preaching. And I want to set this as a truth point for you. It's not on the PowerPoint screen, but to have you remember that the first necessary component of a strong discipleship culture in the local church is a strong pulpit. The first A necessary component for building a culture of discipleship is a strong pulpit. Steve Lawson says it like this, As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. He says every pulpit must present a towering vision of the unique person and saving work of Jesus Christ. All preaching points to his sin-bearing, substitutionary death for sinners. All exposition must lift up this sacrificial lamb who became the sin-bearing substitute for all who believe. I want to thank the elder council at Christ Fellowship for demanding a strong pulpit. By the way, so this is not communicated incorrectly. This has nothing to do with me in any way, shape, or form. But I want to thank personally the elders at Christ Fellowship for demanding a strong pulpit ministry. I need to tell you that in in my case and the cases of many faithful pastors is they spend much of their week preparing to preach. And that's quite a sacrifice for a local church to give a pastor the freedom to spend time to preach the Word of God and teach the Word of God. 
So I want to thank not only the elders for demanding that strong pulpit ministry, but also for the membership here at Christ Fellowship. Those of you who are responsive to strong, authoritative, and bold biblical preaching. So we close. I want to uh, give you a few points of application that you can leave and that I trust will encourage you. And I'll put it like this. The, the faith of God's people. If you're in Christ, you're numbered among God's people. The faith of God's people is informed, cultivated, educated, nurtured, and strengthened by a strong pulpit. I can tell you my own Christian life, the pastors that I have sat under personally, and for other men who I have a chance to read their books and read their sermons and attend their conferences, this has made an, an absolutely amazing effect on my life. It has left me with strong biblical convictions. It has given me strength. It has given me courage. Now I want to leave you with three challenges that I pray will embolden you as well. And I want you to strap on your seatbelts, figuratively if you will, and brace yourself for these bold application points. The first is this. And that is to come prepared to feast on God's Word. To come prepared to feast on God's Word. What does that mean? It means, first and foremost, to get proper rest. I remember when I was a, just a young person, I remember Saturday night, that was the night you could stay up as long as you wanted to, right? You didn't have school the next day. But after a while, I started to come to the conclusion that, wait a minute, I'll be in the Lord's house on Sunday. That means I, I need to get my proper rest. It means that I spend time in prayer the night before, and I spend time in prayer the morning of. It means that I read the passage ahead of time, which is the, the primary reason that I have made the, the passage available now the night before, as Pastor Ken was, was sharing with you, that the sermon passage will be before you so you can read it and meditate upon it and ask the Holy Spirit, oh God, what is it that you would like to teach me to do today? What is it that I can learn about you? How can I be satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ and meditate on that particular passage? You can also prepare yourself by asking God to soften your heart. To not only challenge you, but to, to soften your heart so that you would learn. So come prepared to, to feast on God's word. Second is stay focused on God's word. Stay focused on God's word. I want to have you turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. In the Old Testament, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. And it's been several months ago, I believe, that we looked at a few verses from Nehemiah. But it's probably the best example that I can think of of what it means to, to stay focused on the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe, and I love this, to bring the book of the law. They said, bring the book. Bring the book of Moses so that the, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's a long sermon. In the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And notice, 
And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I believe that somewhere along the way in the contemporary church, we have forgotten what it means to be attentive to the word of God. Something struck me as I read this passage this morning. I want to make a guarantee, and it's a guarantee that's ironclad. There was not one person in this congregation who was checking their score on their cell phone during this sermon. There was not one person who was checking their calendar. You know that why that was, right? Different time, different culture, different place. But what is the practical application for today? And once again, this has nothing to do with me personally. This has to do with, am I paying attention to the Word of God? Or does my mind wander? Or do I make excuses so I can uh, do something else in on the church campus? Or do I make excuses so I don't have to pay close attention to the Word of God? I want to encourage you to stay focused on the Word of God. Number three, let me encourage you to to leave the service expecting to share what God taught you. That is, when you, you leave, you, you talk to your spouse, you talk to your children, you talk to your friends. Tomorrow at work, you say, this is what I learned at church. This is how God is molding me. This is how God is shaping me. And what I have learned is that when I share what I'm learning, I learn that principle even more myself. It becomes clearer in my mind and in my heart. There are some questions you can ask after a sermon. Is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an activity that I need to begin? Is there a person I need to talk to? Is there a relationship that needs assistance? Is there a relationship that needs reconciling? Look at Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 12. This is great. All the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What that tells me is the people of God heard the word of God and they were excited about the word of God. The application this morning is, are you excited about the word of God? Does the word of God thrill you? When you hear Paul say in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word, you say in the back of your mind, yeah, that's right. Preach it, pastor. Or do you say in the back of your mind, you need to cool it. You need to settle down. You need to lighten up. Be less bold, pastor. Or do you say, whoever your pastor may be, bring the book. I need the book. And so leave the service expecting to share what God has taught you. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, is trust. Trust God to revolutionize your life. There are some of you, and I like it a great deal. There are some of you who take notes. Your head is down. Your pen is moving. If you have a portable keyboard, you're tight. And there's something about, because that, that's how I learn. I love to take notes. I love to type. I tell people, if I don't have a pen in my hand or a keyboard, I'm going to be thinking about something else. So that's the way I pay attention. But I am slow. After 25 years of ministry, I I am developing some rather interesting convictions about the whole notion of note taking during sermons. This this is going to, Chris, this is going to shock you. It's going to, Kyle, it's going to shock you. You're the number one note taker at Christ Fellowship, not to put you on the spot. And I love it. I love it, love it, love it. 
But this, this is my conviction that's beginning to get cultivated is, is preaching needs to be communicated on this, on this bridge of, of love, a credible bridge, bridge of love where it's more than merely information receiving. And most of you know me pretty well. I love the information. I, it, it's great. It's exciting. But, and so I'm not saying stop taking notes necessarily, but I'm saying in your desire to take notes, if you're a note taker and I'm one of them, so this is directed at me more than anyone, is ask the question, is it transforming my heart, right? For four or five years before Jereen and I moved here, I remember, and I still have it, it's a large notebook. I would take notes when Pastor Wayne would preach. I would take note after note after note, and I, I treasure those notes. But if... If the, the discipline of note-taking doesn't have an effect on my heart, all I have is a notebook filled with notes. And what we need at Christ Fellowship, we need to have the Word of God written on our hearts, written on our minds, so that, that when we communicate with people, so that we uh, wander around in the marketplace of ideas, so that when we go to work in the morning, we go to school in the morning, people would say, there is something different about that person. They, something is happening. There are changes that are taking place. And so those of you taking notes, by all means, take notes, but make sure you're asking, how is the truth of God's word revolutionizing my life? How is it molding my heart? How is it shaping my mind on the path of sanctification? I began here last year. Am I here today? That is, is there growth in grace? Is there growth in grace that greatly honors and glorifies the Lord? And so the first very important word is the pulpit. The pulpit describes the church that gathers for worship to hear the word of God to receive the ordinances, to cry out in worship to God. And our intention then is to be focused upward. As we come together, as Jason and the worship team leads us, as we open the word of God, we gaze upward and we worship the living God in spirit and truth. And my prayer is this, that today and every day we would leave with hearts that are exploding with the truth of God. And here's a confession, and it's where accountability lies with me. If you leave this morning, if you leave this morning with anything but excitement and your heart is exploding for the truth of God's word, perhaps my approach needs to be adjusted. Perhaps my approach needs to be adjusted because every person that names the name of Jesus today, every professing follower of Christ should leave and think to themselves, Bring the book. Make it like Nehemiah chapter 8. My heart is attentive. My mind is ready. My hands are prepared. My feet are ready to move. I want to make a difference in this community. That is at the very core of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ as we follow him faithfully. And the pulpit ministry stands at the center and at the very beginning of such a disciple-making culture. Next week, we'll turn our attention to the table 
and learn what it means to now move inward from upward to inward. And then finally, we'll conclude our study on biblical discipleship by looking at the square. How can we make a difference in our community? Let's pray together. Now, Father, we thank you for uh, ordaining the gift of biblical preaching. As we said earlier, sometimes it seems almost crazy to us that uh, a man can stand in a pulpit and read the Word of God and proclaim the Word of God. Uh, but that's your, that's your method. That is the way that you intend to communicate truth to people, to communicate it in a, in a faithful way that uh, challenges the people of God, that warns the people of God, that exhorts the people of God. And so I pray, God, that, that each of us who is a professing follower of Jesus would be excited to sit under the ministry of the word, both here and wherever you would lead us in the days to come, that we would have a, a burning desire and passion to, to come together to worship, to participate in the ordinances, to receive the ordinances, and to hear the word of God, and that we would leave joyfully expecting the word of God to transform our hearts, to revolutionize our minds, all to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.